This is the Arc of Change with Donzel Leggett, a podcast from the Anti-Racism Commitment Coalition, an organization dedicated to eradicating racism and hate and spreading anti-racism. Listen as Donzel talks about the relevant topics that will inspire you and help build your capability to take action and change the world. Because none of us are doing enough as long as racism still exists. And now, here's your host, Donzel Leggett. Hello and welcome to the 8th episode of Season 2 of The Arc of Change with Donzel Leggett. In this episode, we commemorate National Hispanic Heritage Month with the first of a two-part series by welcoming ARC member Leslie Rodriguez to the show to share her unique experiences growing up and coming of age as a first-generation Hispanic American and young woman of color, and discuss why anti-racism is needed now more than ever, both outside and inside the Hispanic community. Now let's get started with our show. So I am Donzo Leggett, host of the Arc of Change podcast and founder of the Anti-Racism Commitment Coalition, or ARC. Our vision at ARC is to build a racism-free world. And our mission is to provide inspiration, education, and support for you to transform, practice, and spread anti-racism. Now this begins with our three-part process of personally transforming to anti-racism. Part one is all about erasing your ignorance about racism and hate. Part two is educating yourself about anti-racism. And part three is building the character and confidence to stand up, speak out, and take action to spread anti-racism and anti-hate and make positive change happen. So, This episode is part one of a two-part series honoring and commemorating National Hispanic Heritage Month in the United States, which began on September 15th and runs through October 15th. National Hispanic Heritage Month was actually created to celebrate the histories, cultures, and contributions of American citizens whose ancestors came from Spain, Mexico, the Caribbean, and Central and South America. It started back in 1968 as Hispanic Heritage Week under then-President Lyndon Johnson and was subsequently expanded by President Ronald Reagan in 1988 to cover a 30-day period starting on September 15th and ending on October 15th, with the day of September 15th being significant because it is the anniversary of independence for several Latin American countries such as Costa Rica. El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, and Nicaragua. In addition, Mexico and Chile celebrate their Independence Days on September 16th and September 18th, respectfully. Now, this day was also intended, or this this month or period of celebration, was also intended to help increase awareness and appreciation of Hispanic Americans and their contributions with the overall American population, as well as to drive a greater sense of community and pride within the Hispanic community, which is made up of people from many different countries. All of this was intended to increase understanding and to help reduce and eliminate racism and discrimination against the community. Unfortunately, 
54 years after National Hispanic Heritage Month was born, many in the Hispanic and Latino communities still face significant racism, discrimination, bias, and hate in the United States. And sadly, in fact, studies have shown that Hispanics or Latinos face as much racism and discrimination from within their own community as they do from non-Hispanics. In survey after survey, the sad truth is clear. Yes, Hispanics indicate that they face as much discrimination and racism from other Hispanics as they do non-Hispanics across many different spectrums. But the top three reasons are related to colorism, country of origin, and assimilation. Now, colorism is all about discriminating against people based on their skin tone, or pointedly, the darkness of their skin tone. Now, contrary to popular opinion, there are many dark-skinned Latinos across almost all the Hispanic countries with people of African descent making up the majority of inhabitants of several of the countries that we would think of as Hispanic. But this fact is pushed to the side because darker skin is discriminated against. Why? It's a holdover from imperialism and colonial race segmentation, which rated races from white at the top to black at the bottom to both drive division of the subjugated people who outnumbered their subjugators, and also to incent them to discriminate and fight against each other and aspire to somehow, some way, become more and more white, or at least get closer to the top, which of course, very few of them would ever achieve, but it implanted the idea that you want to get as far from black as possible and you want to get as close to white as possible. It implanted this idea that white is best, and black is worst. And this idea is still dominant in many of the minds of those who have been impacted by colonialism, whether here in the United States or in the Hispanic or Latino world. Country of origin. This means discriminating or looking down on people based on their country of origin. In other words, where they're from, where they were born. The belief that, as an example, Cubans are better than Mexicans, or Colombians are better than Bolivians, or Venezuelans are better than Dominicans, or that immigrants from Spain or Argentina are better than immigrants from Central America. Assimilation. This is the extent at which Hispanics assimilate to American culture or more specifically, white American culture. This sometimes leads to white Americans judging them for not being able to speak English perfectly enough without an accent or to look American enough or white enough. But on the other hand, their Hispanic family and friends judging them for trying to be too white, trying to be too American, trying to be a gringo, and no longer being part of the Hispanic culture, not being Hispanic or Latino enough, leaving them stuck in limbo, not feeling like they belong anywhere. These are complex issues to understand, but very important to understand 
to be able to stand up, speak out, and take action during and after Hispanic Heritage Month. So over the next two episodes of the Arc of Change, we will explore these issues as we speak with two very special guests who can provide us with really strong insight from their own personal experiences and their perspective on why it is so important to spread anti-racism in the Hispanic and Latino community now more than ever and what we must do to make that happen. In part two, which will be in episode nine, will be released in early October, our special guest will be ARC board member Carlos Caballero, who came to the United States in the 1980s as a college student from Honduras. Carlos is an outspoken leader who has worked all over the world and can provide unique global perspective as well as powerful and insightful stories of his experiences in standing up, speaking out, and taking action to spread anti-racism. But for today's episode, part one of this two-part series honoring National Hispanic Heritage Month, our special guest is Leslie Rodriguez. Leslie is also an ARC member and co-producer of the Arc of Change Deep Dive talk show. Leslie's parents immigrated to the United States from Bolivia 25 years ago, and she was born and raised in the United States. Leslie is here to share her experiences growing up and coming of age in the United States as a first-generation immigrant and young woman of color. She will also provide her views on what needs to change both outside and inside the Hispanic and Latino community to start the spread of anti-racism right now. Leslie Rodriguez is next on the Arc of Change. Visit us at joinarcc.org. Follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. And like us on Facebook. All right, welcome back to the Arc of Change, and we're here with our special, special guest, Leslie Rodriguez. Now, Leslie is an Arc volunteer, and she's one of the co-producers for the Arc of Change Deep Dive talk show, which if you have not checked it out, please visit us at joinarc.org, that's J-O-I-N-A-R-C-C.org, and check under tech, uh, Take Action. And under that section, you'll find resources, you'll find videos. Uh, we have some past videos from our Deep Dive talk show. You can also check our events for the schedule of the next Deep Dive event. I uh, wanted to make sure and, and, and point that out because Leslie spends a tremendous amount of her time ensuring we have great Deep Dive talk show events. So Leslie, welcome to our show. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So, Leslie, I know you. I'm so proud of all the great things you're doing uh, from my own hometown in Key West, Florida. Uh, so you give me tremendous pride. But uh, a lot of the folks in our audience do not know you. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, of course. So as Enzo mentioned, my name is Leslie um, and you can pronounce it as Leslie or Leslie. Funny enough, my family pronounces it Leslie. Um, I guess that's the way that you'd pronounce it in Spanish. And then in English, you'd pronounce it Leslie. 
So I always like to mention that because I've had people actually ask me how to pronounce my name correctly, even after like a few months after knowing me. Um, and I was born and raised in Key West, Florida, just like Donzel. But my family actually moved to Bolivia, or not to Bolivia, from Bolivia to Key West, um, probably 25 years ago, right before I was born. Um, my dad's family decided to move to Key West, Florida. My uncle loves the party scene, so he decided to move there and grow, grow family there. And my dad um, was super attached to his brother. My grandma also moved down there. Um, so they just decided to stay together, and then my mom followed along. So that's how, kind of how we ended up there. It's not a real like reason other than um, my family really just loved Key West, and um, they thought it would be a great place to raise a family. They thought it was beautiful. And then from my mom's side as well, she was like, well, that would be a great opportunity for my daughter um, to be successful because from coming from Bolivia, it's it's really hard to make a lot of money there, even if you're an engineer or a doctor or anything like that. Yeah. Um, a lot of my cousins try to ask like how to how to move over here to try to make a little bit more money um, any way that they can, because you could be a really successful person back in Bolivia. But like I said, it's, it's just harder to make money there. And um, they find a lot more opportunities here in the US where obviously um, you start off small and then you can have the American dream of you know making more, right? So um, that's the main reason why my family moved here. And then um, I grew up in QS because I, I feel like they just loved it because they had their immediate family there. Um, I went to Miami a lot as well. So I was very um, involved with the culture there as well, since I had some family up there. Um, but yeah, and then my mom had my sister five years later. She's my built-in best friend. Her name's <laughs> Ashley. She's 19 now awesome. in college, also going to University of Florida, which is actually where I went to college as well. Um, so I'm super proud of her. Um, she's like someone I even look up to because we grew up together, but we both think very differently. And She's someone who's very logical and I'm someone who's very emotional. <laughs> so it's nice to like hear like um, someone to give me more reason to my to my craziness. So that's how how we um, get along. And then, um, yeah. So after growing up in QS for 18 years of my life, I went to school, University of Florida to study material science engineering. Nice. Um, and it was kind of cool moving up there. I didn't think there was going to be a lot of Hispanics, but then I ended up um, joining an organization called Society of Hispanic Professional Engineers. And I met a lot of different Hispanics and Latinos from like all over the world. Um, so that was kind of where I started meeting a lot more people like me. Um, and then I now live in Minnesota. Hmm. So complete opposite spectrum <laughs> of where I started. Um, but I got a job here with General Mills as a packaging engineer. So it's been a really cool experience, experiencing snow for the first time, living up north, meeting people from the Midwest. Um, and then since I moved here, a lot of my hobbies obviously relate to being from Key West. So I did love kayaking and I still do. Um, and I love volleyball, specifically sand volleyball, which they still do in Minnesota. So I get to do that here as well. And then when it's winter, I do indoor volleyball as well. Um, I've been exercising a lot more too since I moved up here. Everyone's very outdoorsy. I've been running. Um, I've been going to the gym with some friends and then I also love to travel. So I try to find any excuse to go to the airport and leave and go somewhere awesome. So yeah, that's a little bit about me. That's awesome, Leslie. And again, I'm, I'm very proud of you. It's like we've, you're kind of like following in my footsteps, you know, from Key West, beautiful, sunny island uh, in the Caribbean, all the way up to Minnesota. 
uh, in the frozen tundra, uh, but doing extremely well. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously you, you, uh, you, you, you have a lot of, uh, courage, uh, to, to go that far from home and, and from your family. Um, and, and you obviously have a lot of drive, uh, to, to make all of that happen for yourself. And, uh, the thing that, um, I think it'd be really interesting to kind of talk about now is the fact that you clearly have had some positive experiences and your positive energy comes through very clearly. Um, and again, to go to the University of Florida from Key West to then, you know, go up to, to Minnesota, work as a, as a, as an engineer, materials engineer and general mills or packaging engineer. That's fantastic. But I'm sure there've also, also been some difficulties along the way. And uh, on this podcast, what we're talking about is, in honor of National Hispanic Heritage Month here in the United States, uh, is why anti-racism is needed uh, so much in the Hispanic or Latino community. And uh, so what I was wondering if you could tell, tell us a little bit about your, sports, your story in terms of um, what, are, what has been your experience growing up as a first-generation uh, immigrant, your parents were immigrants here in the United States, um, and, uh, and, and yeah, let, let's, let's kind of hear some of your views and your perspective, your experiences with this. Yeah. So I like to start it from when I was like a baby, basically, as I was growing up, I think until preschool, my parents only spoke Spanish to me. So right off the bat, I was already exposed to my culture. I was already speaking their language. Um, but then when I went to preschool, obviously it was learning English and within six months of going to school, I already knew like the whole English language. Um, but even though I figured it out right away, um, that still caused some like disadvantages in school. So because I would write on my papers, my first language was Spanish, I'd always get put into ESOL classes. So oh. right off the bat, I did not have the advantage of all the other, other, other American students whose first language was English to be in like those um, higher like like English classes. So I'd always be really behind. I'd have like, for people who don't know, FCAT is like a standardized test. I'd always have really low FCAT scores in reading. Um, and I have really high FCAT scores in math. So it's like, it's not like I didn't know or I wasn't doing well in school, but um, that language barrier, which wasn't really a language barrier, it was making it seem like I wasn't um, adequate at something as simple as reading or writing. But also back home, since I only spoke Spanish, it only made sense that um, I wasn't practicing enough English at home because I'd only speak Spanish. Yes. Um, and and I'd, I'd work on homework and my dad spoke English and he would help me out as much as he could. Um, but as I got older, it got more difficult for him. So I'd have to eventually figure out myself. So right off the bat in school, I tried really, really hard to excel in math and science because I knew that's where my forte was. And I'd be really discouraged in reading um, because I'd always be put in ESOL classes up until middle school. So right there, I was like, wow. okay, my my second language is seeming like a disadvantage. Speaking yes. Spanish seemed like a disadvantage. Even in um, like elementary school, I would get like bullied uh, for speaking Spanish. So that was another discouragement for speaking the language. Um, and then through middle school and high school, like a lot of the students in Key West were mostly white. So I wasn't really surrounded by a lot of Hispanics growing up. I had maybe two friends that um, were Hispanic, thankfully from Bolivia as well. So we had wow. that in common, but like it's two out of like a hundred student, 200 students, right. In your class. And I would always feel like I'd have to be 
just like the white students. So I'd actually try to prevent myself from tanning. I would straighten my hair every day. Wow. I would wear makeup so I look whiter like all the time. And it was something I hadn't realized until honestly, until I moved to like um, college, but actually more in Minnesota that I started ex accepting myself more wow. um, for having curly hair and like for having tan skin. But like in middle school, elementary school, high school, you're trying to fit in. And that's how I thought fitting in, fitting in felt like in the U.S. So it was um, definitely something that took a toll on like my mental health and like my physical appearance. Um, and obviously, as I grew up, I've learned how to accept myself. But it's it's taken a long, long, long time to finally figure that out, like to finally stop straightening my hair, stop worrying about my skin color um, has been something that I've had to work up maybe like 10 years of my life to like finally accept. Um, and it's obviously it's obviously not anybody's fault because no one's telling me to change. It's just like that where the environment I was in was making me feel that way um, because I wanted to be like one of the cool kids. Like I wanted to be like homecoming queen, but like was never going to be voted for it, whether it be the reason because of the color of my skin or because I was a nerdy girl in school. I'm not sure, <laughs> but that's how I thought about it in my head. Yes. Uh, but then there's the other side of it. So as I grew older and started to accept myself and um, by, by being Latina and American, sometimes with my family, I kind of get the same thing, but for a different reason. So if I didn't speak Spanish well enough, for example, yes. I'd be called the gringa in the, in the family. I was going to say familia. I was already starting to speak Spanish, but <laughs> in the family. Um, and sometimes I'd hurt because like I try really hard to speak Spanish. And then when I get turned down, I feel, again, discouraged to speak Spanish. I'm shy, even with my Hispanic friends in college who all spoke to me, like started just speaking to me in Spanish, like as a conversation. I'd be so scared to speak Spanish because one student like decided to make fun of my accent. And then from there on out, I was like, nope, I'm done. I don't want to be criticized for wow. the way I speak. And this is a person who's from Venezuela and like obviously speaks the language really well. Um, I don't want to embarrass myself. So then again, I would stop speaking Spanish. I'd have people talk to me completely in Spanish and I just always respond in English just because I didn't want to like embarrass myself. Um, so even within the Spanish community, like the Hispanic community, I mean, like speaking that speaking Spanish was something that like was difficult for me growing up. And I'm proud to be Latina, but things like that, like make me not want to um, show that side of myself. And for a long, long time, I would not listen to Spanish music because I didn't want people wow. judging me for the kind of music I listened to. Wow. But um, because obviously, like most Americans, they listen to American music and they know like maybe one or two popular songs like Despacito or something yeah. like that. <laughs> but um, lately, since I moved to Minnesota, that's the only thing I play in my car. That's the only thing I listen to. I don't want to like forget where I come from now. And I encourage my friends who don't listen to Spanish music to try try it out. And a lot of them have like come to accept it, which has been nice. But when I was in college, I never listened to it. Obviously, in high school, I never listened to it. I'd always try to make myself more American in that way. And then only speak, listen to Spanish music with family. Like it was very much back and forth of like, okay, how can I make my family make me feel more accepted? And how can I make my American friends, coworkers make yeah. me like feel more accepted. So yeah, I think for me, like the hardest part was like an identity, yes. like an identity crisis. Um, so should I become more American and like, 
stop worrying about trying to be more Hispanic or Latina? Or should I accept me who I for who I am and um, like forget American culture and like just spend more time with family and find more Hispanic friends? At this point in my life, I don't care anymore. I love mm -hmm. both aspects of it. Mm -hmm. um, but definitely growing up and having to figure that out myself has taken a big toll on me. Um, I don't think anybody really realizes it because I never talk about it and I never see make it seem like it's a problem, but it's definitely something I deal with internally all the time and I'm not perfect. I still struggle with it today, yes. um, but I definitely just, what I try to do is surround myself with people who make me feel accepted on both ends. People who love me because I'm Latina or people who love me because we have something in common because we both grew up in the U.S., you know? Yes. Wow, Leslie, that you covered so many things that um, I think are really important, specifically in this episode. Um, what, I, what I was really trying to do with this episode is honor National Hispanic Heritage Month in the U.S., but point out again why anti-racism is needed. Um, you know, I talked about earlier in, in the podcast that, that there's been some really good empirical survey work that's been done with Hispanics uh, to find out where does racism come from? How do they experience it? And it's really interesting that the vast majority uh, came back saying that they experienced just as much racism and bias from within the Hispanic community as they do um, from, from folks who are outside or non-Hispanics. Uh, and the key areas that they highlight, they're the, the three biggest areas where they feel it. One is colorism, which you talked about. Um, the second is, uh, is this kind of nativity or where you're born. Where were you from? Um, some Hispanics from different countries may look down on others from other countries. Um, and the last is this idea of assimilation. Are you trying to be too American? Are you not being American enough? Uh, you're kind of stuck in the middle uh, with, um, you know, with, with maybe white America and saying you're not being American enough and your Latina family and friends saying you're trying to be too. So it's, uh, it, you covered all of those. I'm going to, I want to get a couple questions. I want to start off with one that surprised me a little bit. And this is your experience in Key West. And this is really a good um, wake up for me and, and others on our call that things can change over time. And sometimes it may not be for the better. So when I grew up in Key West, uh, 30 years before you did, um, there were a lot of Latina students there. Uh, when I was in middle school, there was a, a large influx of Cuban refugees um, during the Mariel boat lift. And so I grew up with a lot of Cuban kids. And so I heard Spanish all the time. So it mm -hmm. was actually opposite for me. I wanted to learn Spanish. I felt like I've got to be able to learn Spanish because all these kids, because there were several that, that came and we were in middle school and they spoke no English whatsoever. Um, and so I wanted to learn Spanish. And you're saying there were only two other Latina kids growing up with you. That, that's hard to imagine. That kind of change could have taken place in Key West. But so anyway, thank you for that wake up. But I also wanted to ask you, you talked about, you know, feeling like you had to be your skin, be more white, straighten your hair, fit in in Key West because of those de demographic changes. Since you left Key West, you talked about how some of your family and some of your friends, Latino, would make fun of you because of the way you speak. Have you ever felt or seen racism within the Hispanic community in terms of colorism as well? Uh, is is that something that exists as uh, as again we saw we heard about in the surveys? Yeah, so actually, um, 
when I was a kid, I would play outside all day. Obviously, I'm tan, so yes. I can get even tanner um, <laughs> being outside. And um, it's not really an insult, but sometimes when I get that tan, my family would call me negrita, which means black, right? Yes. Oh, you you got black. Yes. Um, so you're my little negrita. You're like my little black girl. That's yes. It's not like a bad thing. We don't take it as an insult. Like, that's not how... Um, a Spanish speaker would see it as, but like at the same time, I was like, oh, like, what does that mean? Like, I'm, I feel like I'm still tan. So what does it mean to like now be black? So yes. I feel like in the Spanish community, like you're the, how white you are, how black you are, like, obviously we have all the different colors, but like, you're still, there's still that racism that you see even in the U S today. Um, but it's related to colorism. So if you're um, really pale white, which my sister is, she's like, doesn't seem like she's related to us at all. She's like the whitest person in our family. Um, but a lot of times, like she would have a lot of advantages in life. And I'm not saying cause she's not talented or smart. She is, but like, because she always looked American, she never dealt with things I dealt with growing up. Um, she's never dealt with like any bullying. She didn't try speaking Spanish in school. So like, no one ever knew that she really spoke Spanish until like she met, they met our families. Um, my sister has like white skin with dark hair. So it's like, she may have, may have, may have um, been seen as maybe Latina if people recognize those features, but they, most of the time they didn't. Right. Yeah. Me being tan, um, getting a little bit darker. I felt like I would only, I wouldn't really have any friends that were white. <laughs> I don't, I, I don't think I, that was my fault or their fault. I just like a lot of times the white people in my school, like, didn't want to maybe hang out with me because I was so much darker than them or because I spoke a different language. I don't know. As a kid, I didn't understand that concept. I was yeah. just innocent to whatever was going on. And a lot of my friends were actually like darker skinned. So again, not sure if that was me or them. Um, but I did notice that like, as I got older, that was like, huh, a lot of my friends are darker skinned. And then as I got older, becoming more lighter skinned, um, a lot of my friends became more white. So I don't know if that was like in correlation to that. Um, it's just something I noticed. And um, when I have family members that are a little bit on the darker side, I don't think anybody says anything bad about them, but then they always call them that little nickname of, oh, like La Negrita, right? Like yes. a little black girl, right? And I'm not ever sure what that meant for them, if however they felt about it, but it was just the way they were are. And um, I feel like a lot of times I'm not going to say that my family is like racist, but like a lot of times if they ever saw me with someone who's a lot darker skin than me, they'd be like more questioning more about like who they are as a person. Right. Versus like if I invited my friends over, they're like, oh, no, we we trust them more um, than that other friend that you had. Right. So mm -hmm. they don't always like try to, you know, do the psycho psychological thing of like be more friends with um, wider people. Like my mom was like, I just thought you were just going to marry an American man. Cause at one point I did end up dating a Latino back in college. Yeah. Um, and, but he was like, on the, he was still white. Okay. <laughs> so it was like okay. in her head, like, Oh yes, he speaks Spanish and he's white. Perfect. Like no problems. And again, I'm not saying that's like what my, like that my family's like racist. It's just, I think it's been ingrained in their heads that being with lighter skinned people is better, yes. which obviously isn't true, but it's just, what they grew up with. And I would always get mad at them and they make those comments and stuff like that, but it's not going to change the way they think it is what it is. So yeah, it's definitely something I dealt with, um, within my own family. I'm sure people outside of that too have said similar comments, um, like my family, because they're not far off from all the different South American countries. Like yeah. I know we all think 
we're better than another South American country for one thing or another. Um, but we also have very similar thinking of that color, the idea of colorism, um, where if you're darker, we want to steer away from that. If you're lighter, we want to get closer to that. Even within like, um, I actually saw a TikTok actually one time about that same ideal that back in the day when there used to be a mix of black and white, like you'd want to get closer to the whiter side. Yeah. So if you were um, going to marry, if you were black and you were going to marry someone who's white, you're um, helping the race, like you're helping yes. um, improve the race. Mm -hmm. um, and then if you went, to, if you were a white person who's going to like be with a black person, then you were going backwards, yeah. like you weren't improving the race. And so even things like that, that's been, you know, engraved in people's heads from history. Like, I feel like that's what we keep bringing back as um, our parents raise us. And obviously, I don't want to bring that on to my kids. Um, yeah. But you sometimes you can't help it when you make those assumptions <laughs> where I, I'm in an interracial relationship too. like my boyfriend's from Minnesota. Yeah. And even with like being in an interracial relationship, there's still that fear of like, okay, does this white family like accept me for who I am? Um, I know my family's okay with it, but there's just some things that I still want to figure out for myself. Like, is it, is this interracial relationship safe for me? Is it going to make me feel okay? Um, and I know a lot of other people in interracial relationships also deal with that of like, how will that white family feel about this person of a different race being like added into the family and things like that. So yeah, I deal with it a lot. Um, I try to teach my family to not think like that and get to know the person before they start making their assumptions. Um, but it is what it is. And yes. I, I, I try every single day to teach my sister and anybody younger than me to gear away from those thoughts um, and just be an advocate for those, for those ideals. Yeah. It's um, so much of this, you know, starts with, you know, the, the, um, uh, the colonialist and imperialist uh, things that started happening in the 14th and 15th century, the 15th and 16th centuries, um, related to the English, the Spanish, the Portuguese, and the Dutch in particular, starting to impose imperialism and colonialism on darker-skinned people around the world, and um, having to deal with the fact that they have small numbers with superior weapons surrounded by millions of people. And so they had to figure out a way to control them. And one way to do that is to set up a hierarchy. And if you, if you set up this hierarchy of different races, different colors, what's better than the other, it sets this mental model that somehow if I can get closer to white, um, I'll be better. And so instead of uniting as a group, natives, Darker skinned people, Africans all coming together and saying, let's let's all fight against this imperialist. Uh, no, they end up fighting each other. They never can <laughs> unite. And this has carried through all the way to today. It's the same mentality of, oh, man, I don't want to be darker skinned. How can I be lighter skinned? How can I assimilate? How can I be different? I don't want to be associated with this group. So we've got to find a way to get away from that. But there's also the intersectionality of, of being a female. Again, throughout history, females have also been subjugated, um, discriminated against. Have you experienced anything that would say, you know, obviously you're a female and you're Latina and you're darker skin, brown. Um, are there any experiences where you would say you felt uh, misogyny, whether, again, non-Hispanics or within the Hispanic community or feeling like you're not you know, being taken as seriously or 
anything you can talk to us about that? Yeah, um, I didn't really notice it as much um, when I was younger. I noticed it more in the workforce. Um, when I, w- I went to my first plant trial, everything went great. I went with another engineer who's also a woman. Um, they trusted her and they knew that I was learning how, how to use everything. So they didn't really question anything about me. It was a time that I went by myself mm. when I started realizing all eyes are on me for all the wrong reasons. So um, I'm like five two, tan, dark hair, Latina, just came out of college. It's like the perfect disaster for like no one to trust you, <laughs> like right off the bat on your expertise. And at the same time, like I was also learning. So I didn't think I wasn't the one to think, oh, I know everything. But I was in charge of a trial that was running during this plan. So I felt like I had some authority. Um, but no, like there was like a group of maintenance guys working on fixing the equipment. And one guy just giving me the look of up and down. And I'm here like, I don't know what to do. Um, maybe he doesn't talk to me, whatever. And he's like, so who are you? And I'm like, oh, I'm the R&D engineer um, working on this trial. And he's just like, so what do you do, though? And I'm like, oh, well, I was the one who set up this experiment, this trial. And I'm here keeping an eye on it, making sure everything goes well. Um, thank you so much for like helping like fix the equipment. Sorry, like about all the issues happening. And then he's just like giving me the most judgmental look of like, you don't belong here. Mm. Um, this is also middle of nowhere, Ohio. Like, you know, I, I kind of get the, 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 like where I was at the environment I was in. I just wasn't expecting it to happen. Um, while I was alone, I may, I was like, maybe when I was with my other coworker, it would have been fine. But, uh, like if someone did that to me, maybe would someone would have stood up for me, but like no one was there standing up for me. Every guy, everyone there is like six foot tall, white male, you know, yes. like they were going to all gather together to go against me. And it's not like they were being like hostile, but it was just like, I could tell all eyes were on me. I could tell like no one wanted to come up and talk to me. Yeah. Um, everyone was only talking to my systems engineer, um, who is a tall white male and I get it cause he's there every day, but I really wanted to get to know everybody and get yes. to know the operators. And it was, it was probably one of the hardest things I had to deal with, especially being completely alone. Yeah. I would go home to a, a hotel room by myself and like, hopefully not cry when I go home. Yes. But, yes. um, yeah, like it was, it was definitely like a shock to, to realize that, you know, Hey, like now I really have to you know, do everything I can to prove myself when I know like if it was like a man or even a white woman, like they'd still probably deal with the same issues. But I just feel like it wouldn't take them as long to have to prove themselves yes. um, because they are American. They were they seem like they're born here. I don't seem like I'm born here at times. And I get why people have those suspicions. But mm-hmm. like it's still like really frustrating for me, um, but also really sad because I don't want to have to deal with that and I don't want to have to complain about it either because I want to be like strong enough to like be okay with it and be like you know I'm going to prove them wrong but it's still it still hurts you know yeah. and um I feel like I'm trying really hard to actually come back to this plant um and like get all my all my you know ducks in a row so that I can like prove to my prove to them like hey I got this like I know um what I'm doing but I know if it was just a guy like they would just trust him like right off the bat and it, it sucks. But um, I would say that's the first time I've ever dealt with it. I feel like maybe there are times that it's happened and I maybe didn't notice what guys were doing when they were, you know, not taking my judgment or like not uh, 
not accepting my decisions and things like that. Cause I definitely had times where I was too scared to speak out yes. um, because there were so many men in the room. And I'm like, no, if I say something, they're going to question it. And then it's going to be like five against one. And I don't want to do that. And so I'm also like feeling discouraged to speak up during meetings, whether it was in school or in work. Yeah. And this is uh, again, something that uh, I hear very often. Um, and for people who have never experienced, um, you know, kind of being seen, you can see everyone is watching you, but at the same time you feel invisible because they're watching you, but they're not talking to you. They're making you, they're giving you a cold treatment to make you feel like you're not wanted there. Um, that you're, 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 they're suspicious. They're not sure who you are or they just don't like you. Um, that's, that's a, it's one of those things where we talk about white privilege. Most white people have never experienced that. If you are an immigrant in this in the United States, if you're darker skinned in the United States, I guarantee if you're a woman, especially if you're also a woman who is a, a minority or person of color, you have definitely experienced this in your lifetime. And it is it's it's actually sometimes even a worse feeling than, than someone calling you a name, because at least, you know, now where they're coming from. These other people you don't know. And it's very uncomfortable. So um, I'm sorry you have to deal with that. We as a, as a country have to do something to change. And uh, one of the things I think that's important, you said something earlier about you wanted to feel more American or be more, look more American. And that's the mindset that we've got to change people because America actually is not a country of white, blonde haired people. It's a mm -hmm. country made up of many different people that's trending more brown as the years go by. And within the next 20 years, it will be a majority brown country. That's one of the reasons why you're seeing such a pushback uh, in, on this nationalist beliefs and some white supremacy and things like this. Uh, and that's kind of led again. America's done a lot of leadership in the American continents. And there's this feeling even in Central and South America, we have darker skinned people that were and I've talked about this on the podcast um, for, for over a century. Many of these countries have tried to whiten their populations, block black immigration, recruit European immigrants, um, change their census to where you can't claim that you have African ancestry. You're either Bolivian or you're not. You're either Honduran or you're not kind of a thing. Um, but we're slowly starting to see maybe there could be some changes. I was in Brazil last week and we're starting to see more Brazilians self-identify as African heritage. Um, just a few years ago, you know, you'd look at the, the, the breakdown statistically and it would show that 30 percent or 36 percent of Brazilians were were African heritage. You go to Brazil and you know that can't be right. Right. Well, mm -hmm. now it's, it, it looks like it's over 50 percent. So more people are self-identifying uh, because there's been a movement in Brazil for major companies and other organizations to come together and start trying to force change in the country. Uh, and so one of the things I'm curious on, on your thoughts is. What do we what, what can we do in terms of trying to further anti-racism with the Hispanic community to, to start generating more of this perspective that America is supposed to be a melting pot of different cultures? There is no what's the picture of an American white man, white wife, white kids. No picture of America is a different kaleidoscope of colors. And all of us, you are as American looking as anybody. So mm -hmm. how do we get the Hispanic community to think that? Because I do see it is, is it, that this colorism, this lack of, you know, this kind of fighting on assimilation, 
this this idea of where you're from and I'm from this country and you're from that. What do you think we need to do within the community to start driving these changes? Yeah, that's such a like good question. And I might need like a second to get my thoughts. But um, for me, like, I think the assumptions of where you're from just need to stop. I mean, right off the bat, sometimes I tell people, um, oh, I grew up in Key West, Florida. And then I get the question, oh, but where are you really from? <laughs> Like, normally that's not an insult to most people, but at this point in my life, it's an insult because it's like, why don't you believe that I'm American, right? Um, and then I have to tell them, oh, yeah, my family moved here from Bolivia. But also, I'm not completely Bolivian. Like, I didn't grow up in Bolivia. I don't know all the culture there. I only know the one that my family taught me, right? And I grew up here where I learned the culture here. So the assumptions that we make based off people, how they look, I think is where we need to start. It's like, just assume everyone was, is from here until they tell you otherwise, yes. right? Like, why do we need to over explain ourselves? I had a friend tell me that she's tired of telling people where she's from now because they hear the accent and they're like, oh, where are you from? And then she has to go a whole spiel of being from Brazil. And then they're like, oh, why'd you come to the US? And then they make their assumptions like, how did you even get here? Are you here legally? Like those those assumptions, I don't understand why we have to make them every time. There's also Europeans who are here through with visa, but we don't ask them, where are you from? Why are you here? How'd you get here? Who are you married to? Like all those type of questions that are completely unnecessary until that person is ready to talk about it. Yes. So I think a lot of the reasons, a lot of the things that people um, think it's okay to do that is because we as like immigrants think it's okay for that question to be asked all the time, which okay, yeah, it's it's fine. It's fine every once in a while, but understand that we get that question asked a lot every time you meet someone new. It gets exhausting to meet new people, and I've talked about this with people from all over the world. It gets exhausting to meet new people because it's it's really tired. It's really tiring to be like, yes, I'm from here. I moved here because of this. Yes, I speak a different language. Yes, this, yes, that. like it gets exhausting and we don't, we don't want to meet people. We want to just stay within our own community because we know people won't in our own community won't do that. But if we have people like talk to us, like any other human, like yes. that they don't expect of any other race, like just that's all we need because that helps us feel more human. That helps us feel like we belong. Yes. Um, so I think that's my best advice for that. I feel like there's probably a million other things people can do, but the first step I feel like is just assume they're from here until they're ready to tell you where they're actually from until the, until you become close enough to have that conversation. Because I feel like that's kind of personal mm. and a little too deep to talk about because people could have come here as refugees and that can be a really hard thing to talk about. And even though they've normalized it, I don't think they, they should normalize those things. Yeah. One thing I want to mention when we're talking about how you've been treated as a woman, I forgot to mention as men, we need to stand up to that. When we mm -hmm. see in meetings that our female counterparts, our colleagues are being ignored, uh, they're trying to make a point. No one's listening or they make a point. Uh, and then five minutes later, a man makes the same point and everyone reacts like it's the most brilliant idea ever. Like, the, you know, they yeah. forgot completely the woman. We need to stand up and say something, do something. Be an advocate who's willing to drive change. And that's really what, you know, what we're, what we're trying to do here at ARC is, is, mm -hmm. is make a point uh, to call things out. You know, first of all, educate ourselves about what racism and hate are, um, what bias mm -hmm. is so that 
when we see it, it doesn't slip our mind. It doesn't, it's not something that we don't recognize uh, because there are macroaggressions and then there are microaggressions. And microaggressions can hurt as much like what you experience in that facility where they're all staring at you, won't come talk to you, making you feel <laughs> unwanted. Um, we need to say something. Your engineer contact, your system engineer contact could have easily taken you by the hand and walked you over to each person and introduced you and make sure that those people took you in and started yeah. and gave you credibility. We need to do that. Um, and uh, and, so, and uh, again, the other thing is uh, I had a, a really unique perspective. I was in Saudi Arabia a couple of weeks ago. And it's so funny because when you're African-American in the United States, white people never ask you where you're from. Yeah, they don't because they don't think, you know, Mm-hmm. because of the history of slavery. But when I was in, in, in Saudi, I was talking to a guy uh, from Egypt and he was talking about how in, in Saudi, they, you know, they refer to um, older people with respect in, in, in the Arabic language as auntie or uncle. So they might mm-hmm. call this person. And so he was telling me the owner of their business, who he introduced me to, he said, the reason why I called him this specific name is respect uncle. And so I told him, wow, that's very similar to my culture. Uh, my culture, we do the same thing. You know, we call, uh, you know, elders, even if we're not related to us, we might call them uncle. And he said, well, what culture is that? And he's, he's uh, Egyptian, but he lives in Saudi. And I said, well, it's African-American. He said, yeah, but what country in Africa is that from? <laughs> you know, because aren't you originally from Africa, isn't it? And I had to explain to him that, well, yeah, but I, so it's just really interesting because he was coming not from a perspective of where are you from? How'd you get there? It was more from a perspective of trying to link it back to I'm from Egypt. He's and he's from Egypt. He's trying to see, OK, if I'm, I know the different cultures in Africa. So it's just really interesting for me to get a view and walking around even Saudi where racism does exist, colorism exists, mm-hmm. but no one's looking at me with suspicion. You know, no one's looking at me like I'm just another brown or dark skinned guy there like everybody mm-hmm. else, just bigger. So it's just it, it really wakes you up. Same thing. I was in Brazil last week. Same thing. I don't stand out there like I do here in Minnesota, if you will, or even in Florida, some places. Um, so we have a lot of work to do. Um, so what I'd ask you, uh, Leslie, just to give you one last opportunity to tell us, is there one message you want to leave the audience with in terms of how we could spread anti-racism, um, whether it's within the Latina Hispanic community and or across um, the entire country or world as we're trying to do at ARC? What's the yeah. one thing you would want to leave the audience with? Yeah, I mean, well, first with the Latino Hispanic community, um, within our families, you know, it's okay that your son or daughter cannot speak Spanish perfectly. You should be proud that they even tried to speak Spanish and learn it. There's so many kids out there that have an American um, parent and then a non-American, like a Hispanic, like Spanish-speaking parent, um, and they don't bother to learn the language. And then the parents regret it, and they wish that their parent, that their kid was, as we call a no-sabo kid, as a kid that speaks more gringa or gringo. <laughs> um, but at the end of the day, like, I, I'm proud to know the little that I know. And I speak to so many people who are so excited that I speak Spanish that are not Spanish speakers and they want to practice with me because they know I won't judge them. They know that my Spanish is probably as, as good as theirs and it's helpful for them that I speak slower or 
that it sounds more gringa, but I can still change it up and I, I can bring out the Spanish accent. I just need a little practice, you know, <laughs> but yeah, for the, within that, like speaking Spanish, you should be proud that they, they're even trying it, wanting to try, um, never criticize them, you know, like they're trying their best, just like you're trying your best to speak English in another country that you weren't born in. Um, I think they need to understand like, um, that it's like putting an American child in a Spanish speaking country, you know, like that is another experience that I feel like they could understand. Um, it's not easy. Be loving to your kids, do everything you can to support them and whatever they want to do. Um, and show them, show them lots of love, even if they're not perfect, you know, because a lot of times in Latino culture, we try to make sure our kids are the best and they're perfect and they're the doctors and engineers. It's very similar to a lot of Asian uh, cultures, um, as well. So in African cultures too, like all those cultures are very similar and we're always trying to like make our kids the best. Right. Um, but we also need to show them that we love them within their, with their imperfections, you know, and <laughs> that being Spanish or not being Latina or Hispanic enough, like be proud that they even keep that within themselves. And then within the U S like, um, helping us feel more like, like we belong, even though we don't look like you, um, instead of just, you know, if you don't find any interest with me, instead of just ignoring me and talking to other people about football, sorry, Minnesota, but <laughs> sometimes I get ignored because I don't talk about football all the time. Um, but you know, find something else to talk about that is not just your interest. Find some, you know, ask questions that you normally wouldn't ask people. Yes. Um, that's, you know, cause a lot of times in the U S like we do have like a self-reliant, like dominant, which is like very individualistic and it's totally fine to feel to think that way but that like doesn't let people feel like they belong in a group because now you're only thinking about yourself you're not thinking okay how does this person feel like what does this person want to talk about instead of like hmm, what do I want to talk about and if that person doesn't want to talk about it I should just ignore them I'm not saying you should love everybody and talk to everybody and like you know be friends with everybody but I'm just saying like if you were in a room of people that you didn't know how would you want people to treat you and so if I, I'm in usually in a room of lots of people that don't look like me and the only time I've ever really felt accepted is when a person really takes time to ask me questions, not about where I'm from, not about like why I'm here, but about, oh, what do you do for fun? What's your job? You know, like trying to find something to talk about that's not related to just like how I look, you know, um, I think that is what I'm going to finish it off with. Um, I would say the last well, actually I have one more thing to say. I would say the last thing to do is like, you know, treat people like they're human. And I know it sounds weird to say, um, because we obviously do that, but like, just like how you would treat your best friend, um, like with respect and everything like that and love, do that with a person that you don't know. I'm not saying you have to love them. I don't say you have to be their best friend, but like everybody wants to be treated like they're loved. I know people who are listening to this want to be treated like they're loved um and care for and they're heard that's the main thing like you always want to feel like you're heard with who, with your friends make that other people feel that way um who you know don't feel like they're heard like the latino community yes. um or anybody within the minority groups like they are the people who are the least hurt <laughs> yes. like please be that person that listens to us um it makes us feel more human <laughs> thank you so much said so perfectly leslie and just like i mentioned around what men need to do when they see women not being respected or being ignored mm -hmm. um 
All of us need to do the same thing when it comes to eradicating racism and bias. When we see it, we need to stand up and say something. When we see people being ignored, we need to bring them into the conversation. When we hear off-color jokes, we need to call it right then Mm -hmm. and there. In short, we need to stand up, speak out, and take action to drive change. Uh, And bring people into your point. You don't have to love everyone. But um, if I don't like someone, it's because they're a jerk. Not because of the way they look. Not because they're short. Not because they may uh, not be super athletic. Not because they don't like football. It's because they're not a good person. Um, That's the only thing that I'm looking at. Mm -hmm. So I want to make sure that you know, Leslie, as well. Estoy muy orgulloso de ti. I am very proud of you. I want you to know that. Muchas gracias. Oh, my God. I mean, it feels so good. Thank you. Thank you so much, Leslie. Enjoy the rest of your day. I'm sure the audience is taking a tremendous amount of, of knowledge and perspective from this conversation. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you. Visit us at joinarc.org to learn more about ARC. Donate to our cause and join the movement that will change the world. To find the Arc of Change podcast with Donzo Leggett and learn more about the Anti-Racism Commitment Coalition or ARC, please visit us at joinarc.org. You can also subscribe to the Arc of Change with Donzo Leggett on your favorite podcast hosting sites. I greatly look forward to our next episode, an opportunity to inspire you to become part of the movement that will change the world by eradicating racism once and for all. Until next time, stay safe. And continue to ask yourself, am I doing enough? And remember that none of us are doing enough as long as racism and hate still exist. Thanks for listening and goodbye. The Arc of Change podcast with Donzo Leggett is brought to you by the Anti-Racism Commitment Coalition. To learn more about Arc, donate to our cause and join the coalition, visit joinarcc.org. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode and share this podcast to help spread our mission to change the world by ending racism once and for all. Thanks for listening. Until next time, stay safe and be inspired.